Hey, similar to uh, last week, I'm going to begin this week with uh, reading a statement. Uh, I am convinced that what Paul says about the church is true. The church is the pillar of truth in society. When the church loses her voice, the world loses its mind. And I think it's never been more important in light of the prophetic events that I believe are unfolding on the front pages of the news and on the top of the hour on our TV screens all around us, that it is important for the church to speak with a clear and concise voice about how we should think, interact with, and operate with the events that are unfolding all around us. Now, hear my heart as a pastor. My goal is not to turn this pulpit into some sort of political grandstand is not to try to provide commentary on every single issue that comes our way, but on the great moral issues of our day. If the church cannot speak with boldness and clarity, then we are not worth the salt of the gospel that Christ by his spirit has placed on our lives. We have a moral and a spiritual obligation to speak truth to power. You know, we got a lot of flack when Roe v. Wade got overturned. They said, why is the church celebrating? Oh, I don't know. Because maybe for the last number of decades, this has been the primary policy issue that the Church of Jesus Christ has prayed and advocated for to see overturned. If we can't celebrate on a day like that, what are we even doing in this business? So it's important in these moments for the church to speak clear and concise. And it is my hope to do that over the next number of weeks. Last week, the statement I read, we released it online, it went viral. It was seen over 200,000 times. I got messages from people around the world. They said, thank God for somebody in your generation who is willing to speak on these topics. They said, our church was silent. Our denomination was silent. They're acting like the world isn't unfolding all around them. Thank God somebody is speaking with clarity. So I make no apologies for the statement that I'm about to read this morning. For the first time since Israel was reborn as a nation in 1948, the Israeli government has formally declared war and in doing so put Hamas on notice that those who participate in acts of terror will be aggressively pursued by the IDF until they pay the ultimate price for their crimes against humanity. Let me be clear, war is hell. And anyone who has studied it or had the unfortunate experience of living through it will testify to that reality. War should never be taken lightly. It should never be pursued hastily. It is true. Innocent people have died and unfortunately will continue to die in the following days and weeks. And every time an innocent Palestinian find themselves caught in the crosshairs of a war they did not ask for. The international community should respond by placing the blame squarely at the feet of those who deserve it. Hamas and their sympathizers who have left Israel no choice but to leverage their military in an attempt to secure their posterity. When groups of terrorists use hang gliders to fly into Jewish neighborhoods and murder in cold blood defenseless women and children, there is no other option but to fight. The author of Ecclesiastes is clear. There is a time for peace and there is a time for war. And if there has ever been a more appropriate time for war, it's now. 
And in Romans 13, Paul says that God ordains governing authorities to bear the sword and to execute wrath on those who practice evil. Let me be clear. Hamas and their affiliates are not freedom fighters. Hamas is our generation's version of the Nazi party and they are the very personification of that which is evil. Hamas is an extremist, fundamentalist, Islamic organization who in their very charter calls for the obliteration of Jews and the Jewish state. Hamas states that it is the individual duty of every, every Muslim to raise the banner of jihad until the Jewish people are exterminated from the face of the planet. No, Hamas does not just oppose Jews living in Israel. They are diametrically opposed to non-Muslims having the right to live peaceably in any nation, neighborhood, or community, and they will not rest until their dream of global domination is realized. Let me be clear, there is no negotiating with people who adopt the ideology of ethnic cleansing and genocidal extermination. You might be sitting here today and asking yourself the question, how could anyone have supported the Nazis in World War II? Just look at the rallies that took place on the University of Washington over the weekend and you will have your answer. An entire generation has been discipled by the demonic and now gleefully cheers the murder of infants and elderly in Jewish neighborhoods. Today, I am calling on the office of the president, the provost, and the board of regents at the UW to unilaterally denounce the disgusting celebration of terrorism that took place on their campus just a few short days ago. Our civic leaders should hang their heads in shame that this activity is happening on the state-funded campuses of our local universities. Today in Israel, millions of Jews and Muslims live in relative peace as neighbors who happily coexist in the same nation. When I take church tours to Israel, it is common to have Jewish tour guides leading Christian tour groups on buses with Muslim drivers. The war that is breaking out in Israel is not Jew versus Muslim. It is not Jew versus Palestinian. It is the government of Israel defending their right to exist against extremist terrorist groups who desire to rid the world of every single non-Muslim they encounter. Israel is a test. It is a test of our theology and a test of our humanity. It is not accidental that Jesus was Jewish. It is not accidental that Christ will return to the Mount of Olives and triumphantly march through the Eastern Gate. It is not accidental that together, Israel and Jerusalem are mentioned no less than 3,000 times between the Old and the New Testament. It is not accidental that in Romans 11, Paul says, Israel's rejection is not total and it is not final for the branch that was broken off will be engrafted again. And I am not sure how it's all gonna happen, but I am utterly convinced 
that prior to the return of Christ, we will see the consolation and reconciliation of the Jewish people as millions are brought into the kingdom of God through the express revelation of Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah. But Israel is not just a test of our theology. It is a test of our humanity. Why is it that in every generation, a world superpower has arisen to exterminate the Jewish people? From the Egyptians to the Babylonians, from the Assyrians to the Persians, from the Romans to the Nazis, and now Israel finds themselves yet again in an existential battle for their very survival. Maybe you're here today and you don't have some grandiose theological reason to support Israel. That's okay. But at a bare minimum, could you recognize the strategic and political importance of supporting America's strongest ally in the Middle East? In closing, I wanted to remind you of a song written by King David 3,000 years ago. A song that was sung by the Jewish people as they would travel into Jerusalem to celebrate the holy feasts. A song that now soldiers sing as they kiss their wives and hug their children goodbye, some for the final time, as they head out to fight yet again a battle for their right to exist. Psalms 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. For whence my help comes from, my help comes from the Lord. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who watches over Israel shall neither slumber nor will he sleep. For the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. So we say, let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. And may God take what the enemy intended for evil and use it for our good. Now let me preach this morning. Let me set the scene for you today. While devastation is breaking out on earth, while tribulation and, and turmoil wreak havoc on the nations, while, while plague and pestilence destroy international economies, the Bible records something so shocking in Revelation 12 that it almost defies belief. And it is this statement from the Apostle John. Then war broke out in heaven. It's hard to imagine it, it, it seems too wild to be actually true. Heaven is a place of peace. Heaven is the domain of the king. Heaven is the place of no more tears and no more sorrow. Yet in Revelation 12, the scriptures couldn't be more clear. Then war broke out in heaven. I want to share with you today the reality of heaven's war. 
and grant you a glimpse of what it looks like for King Jesus to go to battle on behalf of his people. But in order to do so, you have to understand something important about the nature of God and also the nature of the devil. See, all throughout scripture, the Bible is clear. The enemy does not have sovereign authority. He has delegated authority. Meaning this, the devil is not all places at all times. God is. The devil is not all powerful. God is. The devil is not all knowing. God is. The devil is not outside of time and space. God is. Did you know that in fact, the enemy has to go before God to ask permission to even tempt Job in Job 1? Did you know that the enemy has to go before God to ask permission to try and slander the high priest of Israel in Zechariah 3? Did you know that the enemy has to go before God to try and get permission to attempt to deceive the prophets in 1 Kings 22? Even for the enemy to tempt you today, he has to check in with God first. Now, you might be wondering like me, why would God even allow the enemy to tempt me in the first place? And the easy answer to that complex question is simply this, because God has made you in his image and he simply refuses to eliminate your capacity to choose. You have free will, meaning you've got the ability to decide who you will worship, how you will live, and what you will do. For if even Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, you can bet that you'll face some temptation as well. Now hear me, it's not a sin to be tempted. Temptation only becomes sin when you act on that which you know to be wrong, but you do it anyways. Now each of us in this room are unified by the fact that we will deal with some frame or facet of temptation until Christ calls us home. Our temptations are formed by the family systems we grew up in, the spiritual proclivities we have in our heart, the framework of our mind, the abuse that we encountered, the generational trauma that we inherited. And here's the reality, you can't choose your temptation, but you can Choose your response. Now watch. Watch how good God is. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. And God is faithful, for he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. For when you are tempted, he will also provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. Now watch. God does not author your temptation, but he will allow your temptation. But God will never allow the enemy to tempt you with something that you can't escape from, meaning this, God never allows impossible temptations to come your way. When Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, God provided a way of escape. 
when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tempted by the Babylonian empire, God provided a way of escape. When Paul is tempted to despair of his faith, God provided a way of escape. When Christ was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by the devil, God provided a way of escape. I simply refuse to buy in to what I call the doctrine of inevitability. Oh, come on, I'm gonna fall anyways. I better just give in to this temptation to get it out of my system. No, for every temptation to sin, there is a greater power to save. That's why David says in Psalms 91, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge for his faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. And many years ago, I was discipling a young man who was coming out of years of addiction and partying and sexual relationships. And he had encountered God, got baptized, was getting on the right track, but he was still delayed a little bit in the development of his personal sanctification. I'll never forget the day that I was taking him out to grab a quick bite of food and he opened up his wallet to volunteer to pay and out of his wallet fell a condom. And I looked at him and I looked at it and I looked back at him and I said, and what is this? <laughs> he said, well, you know, pastor, the life I used to live and the temptations I have and I just feel like if I'm gonna be stupid, I'd rather be safe while being stupid so that my mistake doesn't create another mistake down the road. And I said, here's the problem. You have done the very thing that Paul commands us not to do, which is put confidence in the flesh. Yes, the spirit of stupid seems to harass every believer from time to time. But don't buy into the lie that one day you're going to see some gal that's so pretty that you just simply can't control yourself anymore. And all of a sudden, you're just going to have to give in to that same thing that Christ has rescued you out of. Here is the reality of the human condition, if we were to be honest. The reason why we hang on to tokens from our past is because there is a greater safety in the familiarity of our past dysfunction than there is in the unknown future of our potential freedom. I know this isn't good for me, but let me hang on to it because even though it's dysfunctional, like a security blanket, at least it's familiar. I know it's not healthy. I know it's not right. I know it's indicative of what God saved me from. I know it's like a dog returning to its vomit. I know it will only hurt my heart. I know it will only dishonor the Lord. I know it will only damage my identity, but I am too scared to let go of what has become such an ingrained part of my life and my behavior because I simply don't trust that what God is gonna give me in return is better than that which I am offloading. 
And you've got to know today, regardless of what you face, regardless of what you encounter, regardless of what you're walking through, God saw your temptation before you ever stumbled into it. And you better believe that God has provided an off-ramp off the freeway of temptation because he didn't just have the power to save you back then. He's got the power to save you now and continue saving you every step of your salvific process. Now watch. Let me tell you about this war. Revelation 12, then war broke out in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Watch, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. Now watch, God is so opposed to the accusation of the enemy that he will disrupt the peace of heaven to wage war against that ancient serpent who accuses God's saints. What will cause God to arise from his throne? What will cause God to disrupt the unbroken peace of his pavilion? What could cause God to be provoked in his righteous anger? It's when the enemy of our souls dares to bring accusation against the redeemed of the Lord. Watch the prayer of David in Psalm 7. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the rage of my adversaries. The enemy can't accuse you because the enemy has not redeemed you. The enemy may remember your past, but the only thing God does is empower your future. Nothing irritates our king more than when the enemy of our souls uses the weapon of accusation to try and damage our identities. Now watch, it's what Jesus says when the religious leaders want to stone the woman caught in the act of adultery. Woman, where are your accusers? For neither do I accuse you. It's Isaiah 54 and 17. No weapon formed against you will prosper and every tongue that accuses you, God will condemn. It's 2 Peter 2 and 11. Even the angels know better than to bring an accusation against the righteous. See, when Christ canceled your debt, he legally declared you to be righteous, which means there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have what the enemy hates, a bright hope and a good future. See, friend, there is a courtroom in heaven and there is a judge who sits on the throne and when the enemy brings accusation, it is God himself who bangs his holy gavel and he declares not guilty. But the enemy says, but they were divorced. And a voice heralds out from the opposite side of the courtroom, not guilty. But the enemy says, they've been immoral. 
but another voice heralds out from the opposite side of the courtroom. Not guilty, but they've been disqualified. But another voice heralds out from the opposite side of the courtroom. Not guilty. Here's the truth. You have been judged by God. And when Christ hung on the cross, that judgment rung out across the hallways of the courtroom of heaven. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And I would dare to imagine today that with every blow of the hammer that struck the nails through the hands and the feet of Jesus, that as that sound echoed on Calvary's hill through tear-stained eyes, the Father who sits on his throne announced to the world, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. It was A.W. Tozer who said, the only sin Jesus ever had was ours. And the only righteousness we can ever have is his. It's interesting, the English word devil is derived from the Greek word diablos. It means this, one who defames, one who slanders, and one who functions, watch, as the master accuser of the brethren. It is literally the full-time job of the enemy to accuse you day and night. Accusation is never about what you will do. It's always about what you've done. Remember, the enemy doesn't know your future. God does. So all Satan has the power to do is bring up your past. And you gotta hear me today. The enemy's accusations have no power in your life unless you dare to believe that they are true. But here's the sneaky thing. The devil won't accuse you of stuff you haven't done. His accusations are not based on made up events. The devil does not accuse me of robbing banks. The devil does not accuse me of running over old ladies in the crosswalk. He brings up my past, but he does it unfaithfully. And what are you to do when the accuser brings up your real past? Your job is to prophesy an even more real future. Here's the danger. Here's the danger. If you partner with false accusation, it will soon lead to false confession out of your mouth. And if you partner with false confession it will lead you to real bondage. Watch Genesis 3. Watch. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. The Lord called out to Adam, said, where are you? He said, I heard your voice in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And God replied, who told you that? The literal standard version, which is a word for word translation of scripture, 
translates Adam's response as this. I have heard your sound in the garden and I am afraid for I am naked. Therefore, I will hide myself. The same enemy who tempts them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is now the same enemy who whispers in their ears, you are fear, you are shame, you are nakedness, and you should hide yourself. Watch the power of the enemy's accusation. It causes your temporary mistake to become your permanent identity. It's not that Adam and Eve didn't make a mistake. It's that the world's temporary does not have permission to become your eternal. So many believers today are living under the shame of temporary failure and it has caused them eternal and existential heartbreak. And today you have permission to break free from the weight and the sin which has held you back by coming into agreement with the declaration that the judge of heaven has made. Here's the reality. When you're ashamed, you'll hide from the very thing that you need most. What did Adam and Eve hide from? They hid from the presence of God. Only the presence of God can heal the broken heart. Only the presence of God can heal the one marred from abandonment, trauma, and abuse. Only the presence of God can turn your trauma into a testimony. Only the presence of God can lift you out of the miry clay and put you on the firm foundation. Only the presence of God can cause sorrow that lasted for the night and turn it into joy that's in the morning. Only the presence of God can say to the woman who is barren, you've got more children than anybody else. Only the presence of God can heal the wounds of the world that you have experienced. And when you allow shame to dictate your identity, you will hide from the very antidote you need most. So many believers today are living under the shame of past events, causing them to hide from the presence of a good God. Oh, but come on, pastor, you don't know what I've done. Friend, you don't understand what Christ has done on your behalf. He became your sin. He became your sickness. He became your abuse. He became your betrayal. He became your abandonment. He who knew no sin became sin for you and me. And the reason he can declare you not guilty today is because when you gave your life to Christ, he purchased every disqualifying act, thought, or intent that you've ever had in all of your history. Let me end with this story today that I don't know if I've ever shared in a public format like this before. But several years ago, before the church bought this JCPenney, we were in a historic small church building on Cedar Avenue about a mile away. And we were hosting an event on a summer day that involved free food and free coffee and just inviting the community in, trying to love on them best we know how. I'll never forget this obviously homeless lady 
who walked into our foyer to grab a meal and a hot cup of coffee and, and maybe just maybe for a moment have a normal conversation with somebody who wouldn't see her from the outside in. And as the event was getting to wrap up and people were beginning to filter out, this woman made her way for the exit. Several weeks before this event took place, I had saved up money to purchase a backpack at Nordstrom. The reason why I still carry a backpack today is it's just the easiest way to transport my laptop, my iPad, and my Bible. And out of all of those things in my backpack, my Bible is that which is of most value to me because it's sentimental in nature. Because on February 11th, the day that I turned 18 years old, my heart was far from God. And my dad sat me down at a Chinese restaurant, I'll never forget it, and he says, I got you a present for your birthday. And I was like, oh boy, what is it? And he pulled out a spirit-filled Bible edited by Jack Hayford, New King James Version, laid it in front of me. I was so ticked. I said, number one, you know I'm irritated at God. Number two, now I'm irritated at you. And I never forget what I said to him. I looked across the table. I said, thanks for the Bible. I'll never read it. That Bible has been with me the last 19 years around the nation as I've had the privilege of preaching in places I never thought God would ever open doors, seeing people transformed by that power. So it's of sentimental value to me and I always keep it in my backpack and I bought this backpack at Nordstrom and it was unique, it was blue, had corduroy stripes, I'll never forget it. It was something that I had my eye on, it was unique, nobody else owned it and I saved up, it wasn't super expensive, maybe 80 or 90 bucks, but I bought it, it was mine and it held the things that were of most value to me. And as our event was ending, out of the corner of my eye, I see this homeless lady after she has eaten her meal, making her way for the exit in a quick fashion. And do you know what she's wearing? My backpack. And all of a sudden, Pastor Russell took a back seat. <laughs> Prophet Russell arises. And I'm shouting at this lady as she's making her way down the sidewalk. I says, stop! Thief! How dare you! We opened our doors, invite you in, fed you a hot meal, and this, how you go repay the man of God, stealing my backpack. Shame on you. I marched down that sidewalk, I met her, and of course she's got all the excuses in the world. No, this is my backpack. I'm like, yeah, right. I know how much it costs. I ain't never seen nobody with this backpack. This ain't yours. I said, take it off. She did. I said, open it up. We're gonna prove to everyone that you stole my stuff. She opens that backpack. To my surprise, none of my stuff is in there. It's all of her stuff. So immediately I'm like, what you done with my stuff? See, I know how this works. You took it to the pawn shop when I wasn't looking. You've already repacked my backpack with your junk and now you're making off with it. Where's my stuff? She was like, no, I didn't take it. What are you talking about? I said, don't move a muscle, stay right here. I ran back into the church, back to that back chair where I would keep my backpack. And to my shock, my backpack was still there. The contents of my backpack were still inside of it. 
all of a sudden I had a little bit of a crisis as it pertained to my fashion choices. I quickly left the church, went and chased this woman back down and I said, now, excuse me, ma'am. Uh, I've got to make an apology for an oversight that I have had. See, you know, I thought because it's similar and at that time she was already upset and, and never came back again. But what was so interesting in that moment as I was having this conversation with her, I could literally, I could see it on her face. I could see the shame of the extremely difficult life that she has had being brought back to the forefront of her identity. And as she walked off and I stood there on the sidewalk feeling like an idiot, the Lord spoke to me. And he said, Russ, that same way that that woman looked to you is how you look to me. When you allow the accuser of the brethren to lobby falsehoods that end up doing damage to your identity. I would venture to say this morning, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, from time to time, you still hear that voice of accusation in your ears. You know, when I hear the accuser most often, Sundays, 8 a.m., 9.15, 10.30, 11.45, 1 p.m., and 6 p.m. That's when I figure he's most active because that's when I'm most dangerous. And the voice of the accuser is always like, but you haven't been perfect. Look at your life. You're just a phony, a fake, an imposter. You can't really do this. Why are people even here? Ain't nobody gonna show up next week. Why are you even doing this? Why do you even think that you can stand and preach the word? Aren't you aware of the mistakes that you've made? Oh, you think you're better than everybody else? It's the same accuser with that same voice. And so even as somebody who has now been in full-time vocational ministry for the last 13 years, I've gotta boldly approach the throne of grace in my time of need to receive help for that which I am going through and literally break agreement with the accusation of the enemy so that I can shift into my God-ordained identity. Because if I allow his words to reverberate in the chamber of my heart, eventually his words will cause a confession from my mouth that creates bondage in my life. And I will find myself fulfilling negative self-prophecies about who I was rescued from in my past season of life. And I would say today, for many of us, this is a struggle that we face. And you've got to know that God takes it so seriously that in the place of perfect, unbroken peace, God stands up to make war against the one who accuses you. Accusation is losing its authority to dictate your outcomes. You may have a problem, but you are not a problem. You may have made some mistakes, but you are not a mistake. You may struggle with some addiction, but that doesn't get to be the final chapter of the book God writes about your life. You are the righteousness of God 
in Christ Jesus, seated in heavenly places with a new identity, a renewed mind, a restored future, and a bright hope. You don't deserve it, but that's not the point. Christ earned it on your behalf. And from every day forward until Christ calls you home, I hope you hear the voice of the kindest judge ever known to man, the father of lights who delights in his children, who declares over you, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. For that is the God we serve. Come on, would you stand with me as we close?